I mean, none of us hates anything to the degree that God hates pride. One of the consistent themes running through the whole Bible, right from the beginning all the way through to the end, is God's utter and total intolerance of pride. He detests pride. He opposes the proud. He will not endure pride. He will pay it back in full. And it's got to be said, his hatred for pride is pure, is holy, and is absolute. I just want to give you a few examples on the side screens to illustrate the point. James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 31, verse 23, the Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud, he pays them back in full. Psalm 101, verse 5, whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him will I not endure. Proverbs 8, 13, I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16, verse 5, God detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, verse 23, man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Now that final verse I think Acts is a pretty good commentary on the passage that we're going to be camped out in for the rest of our time today. If you remember, over the last few weeks, last month or so, we've been looking at the story of Esther together. Esther is very much the heroine of the piece. We've seen how she rises from obscurity as a poor orphan girl to become queen of the entire Persian Empire. And then, at great risk to her life, She uses her position and influence as queen to begin working for social justice and save her people from almost inevitable destruction. What I wanted to do today is change tack slightly. I want us to change focus away from Esther and instead look at what is the chief villain of the whole story, a man named Haman. Haman is probably one of the most vivid portrayals in the whole of the Bible of what happens to people who let pride rage unchecked in their lives. I want us to pick up the story in Esther chapter 3. If you've got a Bible with you, please open it to Esther 3. Uh, If you haven't, the the words should appear on the screens behind me. We're going to read a bit from Esther 3, then we're going to flick over and read a bit from Esther chapter 6 as well. Let's pick up the story in Esther 3, verse 1. After these events... That's the um, uncovering of a plot to assassinate the king that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, uh, overheard people plotting to kill the king. Uh, He reported it to Esther, who in turn reported it to Xerxes, and the culprits uh, were found guilty, they were tried, and the king survived. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate, they asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. 
When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned how Morde- or who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Then over to chapter 6, verse 1. Some time has passed, but that night the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found, recorded there, that Mordecai in the past had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Actually, nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now, it just so happened that Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had just erected for him. His attendants answered, well, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, well, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, whoever that may be, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe, get the horse, and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. I don't want you thinking this is hype. When I say, perhaps more than normal, I desperately, desperately, desperately want you to listen carefully to this talk because it just might save your life. It really could. Three things we learn from this story. First of all, the character of pride, what it is. Second, the deadliness of pride, what it does. Third, the cure for pride. We have the character of it, the deadliness of it, and the cure for it. Firstly then, What do we learn from Haman about the character of pride? Well, we're told in chapter 3, verse 1, that King Xerxes gave Haman a position that was higher than all the other nobles. Effectively, he's the prime minister. He has the highest position in the whole empire, yet he still sees the need to insist on everyone bowing down to him. Now, in hierarchical societies... Bowing is just instinctive. Some of you, you might come from those kind of cultures, perhaps you know people from those cultures where you always bow to someone who's older than you or someone in a social position that's higher than you. You just do it instinctively. And so Haman must have been a particularly obnoxious character if the king had to command people to bow down to him. As we saw in the passage... 
there was one man who refused to bow. Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, refused to bow down to Haman. He refuses to give respect where respect isn't due. And Haman can't handle it. He can't handle the fact that people aren't giving him the honor and respect that he feels his position demands. And so, in chapter 5, verse 10, we read that he called together all his friends and his wife, and he boasted to them about his vast wealth and his many sons and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all Haman added. I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. What's more, she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Now, his wife, Zeresh, was a particularly pleasant character and a very helpful wife. She, along with his friends, said to him, have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then, go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and so he had the gallows built. Well, let's just to pause there for a moment and explore what this teaches us about pride. Pride according to the Bible, is absorption with self. We certainly see this in the example of Haman. It's obsession with self. In the words of C.S. Lewis, it's ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. This is what pride does. It makes you focus in on yourself the whole time. So you don't get into relationships. You don't get into jobs. You don't get involved with the church. You don't do anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. Nothing is about the thing you're doing. Everything is about you. It's like pride turns, twists, manipulates everything into a means to an end. It's a means to an end of getting respect for yourself. It's a means to an end of getting approval from others. It's a means to an end of getting more glory and honor and recognition for yourself. That's the reason why Haman gets no satisfaction whatsoever from all of his accomplishments as long as this one man, Mordecai, refuses to bow down to him. What he wants is for people to respect him, to approve of him, to admire him. It's like pride leads to these endless ego calculations. It's always adding things up. Am I getting the thanks that I deserve? Am I getting appreciated around here? How am I being regarded by other people? How am I looking? How, how does this make me appear to others? Are, are others getting more attention than me? Are other people being given more opportunity than me? Are other people getting promoted beyond me? Are others being given more honor than me? You're always making those calculations. You're always saying, what about me? What about me? What about me? I really want you to see this. There are actually two forms of pride. On the one hand, got a kind of pride that I guess we're more familiar with. 
It's the superiority form of pride. You're doing all the calculations, and everything's adding up okay. You are doing better than others. You're performing pretty well. You, You know you are, and you're pretty sure other people realize you are as well. You're getting the attention you crave. You you feel pretty good when you compare yourself with the people around you. It's one form of pride. There's another form of pride. It's one that maybe we're not so used to seeing as pride. It's the inferiority form of pride. It's where you're down on yourself. Maybe you don't like how you look. Maybe you don't like how you're doing. You're very self-conscious. And you're always beating yourself up. And the reality is, you are just as self-absorbed. You're doing all those comparisons as well, but you're not making out as well. Now, we don't tend to think of that as pride, but it absolutely is. The superior person and the inferior person, they have much more in common with one another than they do with the humble person. Because pride is all about self-absorption. And humility isn't all about thinking less of yourself, is thinking of yourself less. It's not being needy for approval and respect. It's not caring whether people give you approval or respect. So you can hang out with people. You go to certain places. You do certain things, not because they make you feel good about yourself or because they gain you the approval of other people. You, you, You do it for the things themselves. Because it's not all about you. That's what it means to be humble. You see, It's the complete opposite of the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self that so characterizes pride. But so what? So what? Perhaps you're thinking, well, you define pride rather broadly, and I find this slightly interesting, and I haven't really thought about it this way, and I can kind of see your point of view, but I don't really see the need to do anything about it. I want us to turn our attention to what pride does. Secondly, I want you to see the deadliness of pride. Look again at chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman wasn't satisfied with only killing Mordecai. He wants to destroy the whole community. And so, as we've seen earlier on in this whole series, Haman goes to King Xerxes and gets him to issue this irrevocable decree that all the Jews, men, women and children, in the whole of the Persian Empire should all be slaughtered on a set date. It's like his pride sets in motion this appalling chain of events that leads to huge, huge destruction. Thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of people are going to end up losing their lives, including, ironically, Haman himself, as we'll see next time. Now, the Bible's incredibly clear on this. Pride goes before a fall. Pride leads to devastation. Pride leads to destruction. Pride is absolutely deadly. Obviously, this example we're looking at today is a pretty extreme one. Probably isn't anyone here today currently planning mass genocide because someone isn't giving you respect. That probably doesn't relate to us so closely. Nonetheless, 
I still want you to see that all pride is deadly. Let me try and show you how. Here are a few examples. First of all, and this might seem fairly low level, but it is incredibly important. Pride makes you a fool. Pride makes you foolish. You see, pride keeps you from ever learning from your mistakes. Because a proud heart is always self-justifying. I don't know, maybe your relationship breaks up, or there's a falling out with this particular person, or that job just doesn't work out. What are you always saying? It's him. It's her fault. It's those circumstances conspiring against me. It's never you. It's like you're always so quick to justify yourself so you never learn from your mistakes. Humble people are completely different. They can accept they make mistakes. They don't have to be constantly keeping up appearances. They can actually accept blame where it's due. They can even laugh at themselves at times. And, and as a result, they learn a whole lot quicker. But when something goes wrong, they actually look for what they've done wrong so they can put it right. Even if it's only partly their fault, they can still learn from it. But proud people just can't do this. They can't learn from their mistakes in general, and they can't learn from criticism in particular. I'll tell you, one of the best ways to grow is to take criticism. But you see, the superiority type of pride, when, when someone criticizes you, you either dismiss them, or you attack them, you lay into them. And with the inferiority form of pride, well, criticism is so very devastating that when people even try to broach the subject and talk to you, you it's like you go in a meltdown. And end up saying, well, just forget it. And so you never learn anything. And because you don't learn from your mistakes in general, and you don't learn from criticism in particular, you're a fool. You're foolish. I know that sounds a bit harsh. I guess you didn't get up this morning wanting to come to a meeting like this just to be addressed as a fool. But it's true. Constantly make bad choices. Maybe you choose the wrong job. You choose the wrong boyfriends or girlfriends. You choose all kinds of things that are wrong. Why? Because the superiority form of pride causes you to constantly overestimate your gifts. And the inferiority form makes you always underestimate your gifts. You always look down on yourself. And the people who you perceive to be above you, you resent them. Maybe you fear them. Perhaps you find them threatening. And the people who you think are below you, you tend to disdain and look down on them and refuse to learn from them. And so you're constantly making these miscalculations. You're constantly making wrong moves, wrong decisions. Just like Haman does here in this story. It doesn't just make you a fool. Pride also makes you evil. Pride isn't one sin among many. Actually, it's the root of all sin. Again, let me try and illustrate this for you. A few maybe slightly provocative examples. A way to think of bitterness not to be bitter, but just consider bitterness. Some of us, many of us perhaps, struggle with bitterness or anger or resentment towards people. Maybe it's an individual. 
Maybe it's a type of person. Maybe it's a whole group of people. But you need to remember this. You can't stay resenting someone. You can't remain bitter towards someone. You, you can't stay angry with someone or resentful towards someone unless in some way you feel superior to them. Because effectively you're concluding, I would never do anything like that. I'm appalled by you because I would never do that. You see, there's no bitterness without pride. It's like pride's the fuel that keeps anger and resentment and bitterness burning. Or what about fear? Or worry? Some people, they're gripped by fear. They're paralyzed by worry. You know where that comes from? You know exactly how things have to go. You're sure you know what's best to happen in your life and in the lives of the people around you. And it's got to be this. And if this particular thing or these certain things don't happen, then it's just going to be a disaster. And, and you're freaking out a bit about it. Why? Because you know exactly how things need to go. How can you know? You just know. I suggest that takes a certain degree of arrogance. Listen, you can't be worried without being proud. Pride also leads to being terribly opinionated. You always know best. It also leads to being indecisive because that's the inferiority form. You're just afraid of making the wrong move because of how you're going to look to others. Pride can make you too abrasive. That's the superiority form. Pride can also make you too shy. That's the inferiority form. And that's just personal stuff. You also get a whole load of social evils, racism, injustice, imperialism. They come from class pride, or racial pride, or overweening national pride. Pride makes you a fool. It makes you evil. But that's not all. Let me, let me tell you something else that makes pride so very deadly. It's the one sin that hides itself. Pride, if you like, is the carbon monoxide of sin. It's odourless. It kills you without you having any ability to tell it's actually happening. You see, the more proud you are, by definition, the less proud you think you are. Pride hides itself. I mean, you know when you're committing adultery. You, you never say, oh my gosh, you're not my wife. How did you get here? I mean, you realize, you know if you're committing adultery. You know when you're embezzling someone. You don't say, how did that 250,000 pounds get into my account? I mean, I'm sure I didn't earn that much last month. You know. You know when you're stealing. You know when you're committing adultery but very often you don't know when you're being proud. Virtually no one responds to an appeal at the end of a message like this one today and admits they're proud. Over the years, I've listened to people confess all manner of sins. Never once has anyone said they want to come and see me, speak to me, because they've got a problem with pride. In fact, I want you to be honest here. While I've been talking... Have you been thinking about someone else that this message particularly applies to? Haven't you immediately thought, 
that sounds just like so-and-so. I wish they were here to hear it. Or they are, and they're sitting next to you, and you've been discreetly just nudging them. That's you. It takes a certain amount of pride to have listened through the talk to this point, mainly thinking about someone else. It shows a certain superiority on your part. You're beginning to see how deadly pride is. It makes you a fool. It makes you evil. And it's almost impossible to self-diagnose. Other people can recognize it. They'll be very quick to say, yeah, you suffer with this. Very hard to see it yourself. So thirdly then, what's the cure? What can we do to rid ourselves of this? Well, because it's a church, perhaps you're expecting me to say, God, you need to get closer to God. You need to pray more. You need to rush away and obey the Ten Commandments. You, you need to humble yourself before God. That and only that will deal with the deadliness of pride in your life. I'm not going to tell you that. At least not quite that way. And here's the reason why. This is perhaps the worst thing about pride of all. If you get someone really religious and they start trying really hard to read the Bible and pray and obey God, religiosity will kill off lust to a great degree. It will kill off materialism to a great degree. But it just makes pride worse. I tell you, there is no pride like religious pride. And just to be told that God's great and you need to obey Him, that doesn't deal with pride at all. Because in the end, you'll either conclude you can live up to that standard... And so you'll get all self-righteous. Or you'll feel crushed. I can never live that up to that. And that also leads to self-absorption. You see, religion will make you feel even more self-conscious, either aware of how great you are or how lowly you are. It has the power to either make you feel even more of a failure or it'll make you feel altogether more superior to everyone else. I mean, we have the truth. Everyone else has got it wrong scary. Religiosity can kill off most other sins, but it's like pouring petrol on the fire of pride. Only makes it worse. So what is the cure? What do we do about this? At the beginning of chapter 6, Haman comes to see the king. Remember why Haman isn't satisfied with trying to kill just Mordecai and wipe out all his people he wants to make a public spectacle of Mordecai. So he builds this huge gallows, 75 feet, 75 feet high in this public place. And he comes to the king to ask for special permission to hang Mordecai. But all the time, God has a different idea. And that night, the king can't sleep. And so he calls for the book of Chronicles to be read to him, presumably to send him to sleep. And he discovers that as the Chronicles are being read to him, that sometime previously... Mordecai had saved his life from assassination. But for whatever reason, he has never been rewarded. And it just so happens that Haman enters the palace just as the king makes this realization. So he asks Haman, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman, desperately needing respect, and desperately craving approval 
and desperately wanting more glory and more honor, thinking the king is surely referring to him, he comes up with this fascinating proposal. He says, let the king's robes be put on this man, whoever he may be, and let him be put up on the king's horse. In other words, give him the position of a conquering king. And let your greatest noble take the place of a servant and walk along heralding him. That will show how much you delight in this man. I need to give you a bit of background before we move on. Back in ancient times, robes were far more significant than they are today. For the king to put the robes on someone indicated far, far more than just giving him a high position. So, for example, in Genesis 41, when Pharaoh places his robes on Joseph, it was inviting Joseph to partake of the king's position. When Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 18, gives his kingly robe to David, it's Jonathan's way of saying, I love you. You should be king instead of me. In other words, for the king to put his own robes on someone wasn't simply saying, I honor this person far more significant than that. It was an expression of delighting in him. It was a sign of immense love. So here's what Haman's really saying. If the people out there saw that I am loved like that by someone as great as that, then they will know and I will know my truth, true worth. You see, when everything's stripped away, That's what we really need. We don't just want to be loved. We want someone we think the world of to think the world of us. If you like, we want the praise of the praiseworthy. That's what Haman was looking for. But to his absolute shock, the king says, do that for Mordecai. And Haman, you take the role of the servant leading the horse along. It's perhaps the most astonishing most incredible reversal of fortunes. Mordecai was about to be hung and trampled in the dust. Suddenly he's up there at the very pinnacle. And Haman was about to finally reach the incredible pinnacle. He ends up playing the role of a servant. But then, isn't that the consistent message of the Bible? If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. Now, I don't want you to miss this. In reality, I don't think Haman was looking for the wrong thing. I think he was looking for something we all want. We want someone of ultimate glory loving us. I think we all crave this ultimate assurance of who we are. I think we all need to be secure in our worth. And to get that, ultimately, we need someone of worth to declare it over us. I think Haman was merely expressing, in a slightly twisted way, a desire that all of us possess. What he did wrong was ask the wrong king. You see, there's a far better king. There's a king with ultimate glory who chose to come to earth and he stripped himself of all his glory. And he went to the cross And when he went to the cross, he wasn't merely stripped of his clothes, he was stripped of his father's love. He was stripped of his father's approval. 
The reason why? He was reversing places with us. Mordecai was saved only because Haman reversed places with him, but it was involuntary. He didn't choose willingly to do it. However, Jesus does it voluntarily. He willingly chooses to do it. There's the ultimate king. There's the king of real glory. The incredible thing is, you can approach him. Jesus Christ is the king that you can go to because he, at infinite cost to himself, willingly reversed places with you. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Will you let it sink in? We must never, ever, ever get over-familiar with this phenomenal truth. Jesus Christ willingly exchanged places with us. Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. He took the punishment that we deserve so that we could gain the reward that he deserved. And Jesus is here right now. And I believe he would want to look you right in the eye and say to you, I so want you to realize the robes of the ultimate king are yours. I freely give them to you. They belong to you. The praise and the glory and the honor and the delight of the ultimate king, they're given to you. Don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever forget that. I mean, what more do you need? I love you. I accept you. I've chosen you. So now, won't you go and live in the good of it? Honestly, when we know that he loves us like that, and that he willingly went through that for us, isn't that the punch we need to once and for all knock our ego out? You see, it's not enough to say, well, I believe in God. That doesn't make you humble. What you have to see is God coming all the way down and at infinite cost to himself, reversing places with you. Because on the one hand, to know that he had to die for you, that humbles you. I mean, you couldn't save yourself. You could never be good enough to earn relationship with God. You needed him to save you. And on the other hand, to know that he chose to die for you, that affirms you infinitely. And if you know that he now loves you that much, then doesn't it free you to live for him in a whole new way? What do you think about it? Jesus Christ, he was so secure that he didn't care what others thought of him. He was so secure that he was strong enough to always obey his father, 
even when it meant going to the cross for us. And if you see him doing that for you, you'll be that secure too. You'll be secure, strong enough to be weak. You'll be secure enough, strong enough to learn from your mistakes. You'll be secure enough, strong enough to take jobs and have relationships that don't necessarily make you look good. They're just the right thing to do. You won't be full of yourself. You won't be down on yourself. In fact, you won't be, you won't be so obsessed with self at all. Don't you want that? Don't you long for that? The extent to which you grasp what Jesus has done for you, that's the extent to which you'll have that inner joy and that peace and that freedom and that incredible security that will enable you and equip you to move out from this place with genuine humility. And that's what I want for all of you. Desperately want it for all of us.